Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is John Sherrill. I, too, am a pastor here at, at the church. It's great to be worshiping with you. Uh, and has already been mentioned, we uh, begin the season of Advent uh, today. Actually, today is the very first day of the new church year. So, Happy New Year, <laughs> in that sense. Um, and our, our Advent series is titled Gifts in the Waiting, uh, largely because uh, the stories of the Bible serve, or can serve both as a window and a mirror. Uh, they're a window, of course, because as we read them, we get to look uh, into the lives of others, those characters in the Bible, observe their lives and kind of how God was at work with them, in them, at their time. And at the same time, those stories are mirrors because, you know, God's big story is the story uh, under which we live if we're in Christ. And, and what God has been doing in the world, God is still doing in the world. So we see a bit of ourselves in these characters. So this series will look at uh, the gifts these characters in the stories received and how we can receive those same gifts and how we might share those gifts with others. And today we're going to be reading Isaiah chapter six, uh, all of it, there are 13 verses in there. And we'll, we'll read that in just a moment, but a, a quick setup for that passage. What we're going to hear in a moment is, uh, is really Isaiah's personal testimony. I mean, it's his story of coming to faith in God. And, and there's tremendous power in our stories, uh, right? I, I love this um, verse from Revelation that says this, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And in the context of that verse, they refers to the followers of Jesus and him refers to the evil one. So they, the followers of Jesus, overcame the evil one by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The power of sharing our stories of faith and, and you know, how we came to the place of faith even. There's one community group in our church uh, if, that, if that's a new phrase to you, we have smaller groupings of folks in the church called community groups, typically meet in homes and, and have a meal together sometimes, sometimes just share dessert or coffee and then sometimes talk about the scripture text for the Sunday or, or do some other kind of study. One of our community groups decided to invest time in sharing their stories with one another. It's kind of going around the circle, uh, just one person or couple per meeting and sharing those stories. Incredibly powerful time. Uh, not just your personal story, like how you grew up and stuff, but your story of faith, too. How did you become a person of faith? How did you become a follower of Jesus? So the point, I think, of that verse in Revelation is that sharing our stories plays a critical role in overcoming evil, the power of the evil one, in our lives and in the world. So with that set up, let's listen to Isaiah's story. The sixth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, 
The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah begins by giving us the year of his conversion. The year King Uzziah died. That was 740 BC. So we have a date, a time. Isaiah's was 740 BC. Mine was 1992. When was yours? Uh, not, not every Christian has to be able to point, of course, to a specific date and time when they became a Christian. We, we understand that. Uh, many of us in this room were probably raised in the church. Some might say, I could never remember a day that I didn't know the Lord. And uh, I think that is God's great blessing in the way it ought to be. I heard one pastor put it this way, the thing that really matters if you're riding a train from Germany to France is not that you know the exact date or time when you cross the border into France. It's that you know you're in France now. That's the important thing. It was 740 BC and Isaiah had a vision. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah had a vision. He saw a God, the creator of everything, on, on his throne, exalted and lifted up. Now, the, the train of one's robe, of course, is the part that trails behind the one who wears it and, and walks along. Listen to this background from the ancient Near East. It was common for a victorious king to cut off the train of a defeated king's robe 
symbolically removing his authority to rule, then the defeated king's train would be added on to the end of the victorious king's robe, symbolically adding to his authority the authority to rule the newly conquered kingdom. In Isaiah's vision, the train of God's robe filled the temple, one of the largest structures known in that day. And it was full of the train. I mean, the meaning is clear. This this was the king of kings and lord of lords, the one with authority over every other king. See, Isaiah came into the presence of Yahweh Almighty, the one true God and the king of the universe. And, And in this vision, there were seraphim, or literally from the Hebrew, burning ones, named apparently for the way they looked. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Hebrew language uses repetition for emphasis. And one Old Testament scholar I very much respect, Alec Motir, puts it this way. Hebrew uses repetition to express both what is superlative and what is the total truth about something. He goes on to share an example. If gold were of the finest quality, in English, we would call it pure gold. In Hebrew, they would call it gold gold, meaning this is really pure gold. There's only one instance in the scripture where something is repeated three times, and it's right here in this verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. See, holiness is the total and complete truth about God. Yahweh is holy, not like us. God is completely set apart from us. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Completely different than us. You're getting the idea here. Isaiah's conveying this experience he had. He had had this vision. He came into the presence of God, was was overwhelmed with the reality of God. No no getting around the reality of God. That that God is and that God is all-powerful and that God is holy, completely different than we are. Oh, and the last part of that verse, the whole earth being full of his glory, it's like it's saying, oh, and, and by the way, Isaiah... You've been missing the obviousness of this your entire life because the whole earth is full of his glory. Or or maybe more literally translated from the Hebrew, that which fills all the earth is his glory. The earth is full of something and it's the glory of God. Was this Isaiah's awakening to general revelation? Now, if that's a new idea to you, Christians believe in general and specific revelation. General revelation is what can be known about God by simply going outside and looking up or, or looking at the person sitting next to you. Right? The book of Romans puts it this way. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Indeed, the whole earth is full of God's glory. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. My awakening to general revelation, though I would never in a million years have called it that when it happened, (laughs) came on a spring evening in 1992. I was riding my bike home from a gathering of the Christian Student Fellowship on the campus of Miami of Ohio. I was at a Bible study. I wasn't yet a Christian, but I was inquiring. It was a cloudless Wednesday night. I stopped my bike in the middle of the academic quad, which was entirely vacant at that moment, which was a very rare thing. I got off my bike and looked up and saw a gazillion stars. And for the very first time in my life, came face to face with the reality that the whole earth is full of his glory. I'd seen the stars before, thousands of times, I'm sure. But it was like I had never thought about the stars before. Really thought. Where did all this come from, really? And the very next thought, hang on a second. God is actually real. Now, I don't know if you've had that kind of moment in your life. If you, if you have, what comes right after that, what comes next, is normal, natural, and very predictable. It was my next thought, and turns out it was Isaiah's too. Woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You know, one's initial response to the reality of God is fear. You see this all through the Bible. It's why Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says, don't be afraid. Because our, our first reaction is, whoa, this whole bit's real. I mean, Isaiah's words were, I'm ruined. Mine were more kind of like, I'm toast. Uh, Isaiah's words literally meant, I am silenced. Uh, Silenced as in death. I am silenced. And here's how the logic goes. Whoa, God is real. I know me and I've got nothing. I mean, when we come into the presence of God, we immediately see the truth about ourselves. Unclean. Unclean. And notice how Isaiah focuses on unclean lips. I mean, this isn't like they all forgot how to use napkins and they were like a little messy. This is about what comes out of one's lips. And Jesus put it this way. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. 
And the book of James has a lot more to say about this, right? The taming of the tongue. Small things set the big forest on fire. But the point here is that Isaiah came face to face with two things. The living God who is real and true and the reality of his own brokenness and sin. And like all of us, I would argue, when those two things come together, we intuitively know they don't go together. They never could go together. They will never go together. The truth about God and the reality of our sin. And this seemed like an unresolvable problem to Isaiah. And when we encounter the full reality of God, it it feels unresolvable to us too. But gladly, it was not unresolvable for God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice, Isaiah didn't go get something. Isaiah didn't go and do something. He didn't sign up for a seven-week seminar on spiritual meditation. He didn't go grab the latest Deepak Chopra book on, on whatever. The seraphim flew to him. And this is the way it works. This is the way it always works. And this is the only way it works. Salvation is a gift given to us, not something we figure out or achieve or earn. It's always that way. It's brought to us by a messenger of God. And don't, don't let the hot coal thing mislead you. This isn't just a purification by fire kind of idea, as if difficult situations in life purify us and make us better in God's eyes. I mean, challenges probably do help us, but that's not the spiritual math here. The coal was from God's altar. This is purification by God, not purification by fire. And that's the only way spiritual purification happens. And and we see here both the what and the how of salvation. Your guilt is taken away. That's the what. Right, that's what happens when God purifies us. And the how part is next. Your sin atoned for. Meaning a price was paid for your sin and you were bought back for God. There was a covering price paid. Back to Old Testament scholar Alec Motir for a second. I love the way he translates verse 7 from the Hebrew. Behold, this touched your lips and your iniquity went And as for your sin, the price is paid. (laughs) Your iniquity went. I love that. Went where? It went away. Right? Of course, we understand that it went on to Jesus. You know, he he bore our sin in his body on the tree, says the New Testament. So we know it didn't just go away. Jesus took it. But the imagery is. We're here, and when God purifies us through what he did for us in Jesus, our iniquity goes. 
it leaves. It went. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, says the psalmist. Now, how did it go away? Because atonement was made. Literally, a covering price was paid. For those of you more familiar with the Bible, I, so, I hope you see in, in Dr. Motir's translation uh, some, some resemblance to what Jesus said. Motir wrote, as for your sin, the price is paid. Think back to the final words of Jesus on the cross. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, the Greek word translated, it is finished, is the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. It was a business word, a commercial term. And when someone owed a debt and they paid it completely, tetelestai was stamped on the bill. So why was it that in his final moment on earth, Jesus used a business word? Have you ever thought about that? It is paid in full. Right before he died, last thing. Paid in full. And you can hear that claim echoing through the centuries. Paid in full. 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 In the Hebrew language, there are different modes of verbs. One of the modes is called the intensive active. This also from Dr. Motier. An example would be the verb to break. In the normal mode, breaking just means breaking. In the intensive active mode, break becomes break completely. Demolish, shatter. You get the idea. Well, the intensive active mode is used in verse 7, where it says the, the price is paid, your sin atoned for. Meaning, it's not just kind of paid or kind of covered. Your wrongdoing and sin has been paid in full, completely paid fully covered and, and not just completely paid and fully covered but so completely paid and fully covered that it will never hinder you again and no one anywhere can ever bring back the receipt and say that you still owe something it is paid done forever that's what that word means and this friends is the gospel of Jesus this is the good news this is what God has really done for us. It's the news that everyone everywhere must hear. It's not just a churchy byline. This is the thing. Our debt has been paid in full. The world has a savior. His name is Jesus and he wants you back. He wants to pay the price for all of your wrongdoing, everything that separates you from God. And he wants to welcome you back home. This is the great exchange. When Jesus pays our debt and we get his credit report. 
That's grace. I heard grace made into an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. We get the credit report. Jesus foot the bill. It's the gift of cleansing. Many of us have already received this gift and our work is to go on receiving it, to go on believing it, right? Some haven't yet received this gift and in that sense, it really is a gift in the waiting. But the waiting can end today. You know, follow the pattern of Isaiah. We turn to God, we ask for help, we receive Christ, meaning we place our trust in Jesus by saying yes to as much of God and Jesus as we understand right now and we start pursuing God by reading the scripture and praying and, and talking to other believers. I mean, that's what I did after I rode my bike home from the academic quad that night. It was the first time I'd ever knelt to pray. Very powerful and a physical symbol of that moment for me. And the prayer was painfully unsophisticated. I mean, really, it was, it was oh, God, I... I think you're real, and I'm scared. I need help. And that was kind of the end of it. And you know what? God really helps because the Lord wants to. There's no like magic religious formula we've got to brew up to make something happen. We're not doing this on our own. God is real, and God wants to meet you where you're at. And and finally, God calls you know, one last thing from Isaiah's experience. Right after being cleansed, Isaiah heard God's voice. And, and don't miss what the text says. Right, up until then, the only voice heard had been that of the seraphim calling to one another. The messengers of God had been speaking, but now Isaiah heard the Lord's voice the voice of Yahweh, God. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. I mean, the messengers of God were focused on telling the truth of God's salvation. God was focused on sending more messengers. Let's not miss that. The seraphim were announcing the reality of God's salvation. God's heart was clearly for the multiplication of messengers. And that voice is still heard today. We heard it in what Jesus said. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And in the words of Paul, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's not just for church staff people or or people who preach as part of their job. The mission of God belongs to the people of God. Or, Or maybe more accurately put, the mission of God is the mission of the people of God in this world. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It was the train of his robe that filled the temple. All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The King of kings and Lord of lords gives us the gift of calling once we've come to Christ and received the cleansing that he offers. And the calling, our great purpose in life, no matter what, whatever else we might be doing, is to join God by becoming willing messengers of the kingdom. Now, I am not, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you gotta go out tomorrow and strong arm evangelize your unbelieving friends. Actually, you should not do that. Because that's more like trying to take over the Holy Spirit's job and create conviction in a person's heart. That's not our job. Our job is simply to share our story like Isaiah did here. And there's incredible power in his story. So my question to me, not just to you, to me and to us, are we even trying in the realm of sharing our story with people? When's the last time we did? Does your immediately, immediate family know your story about how you came to faith in Jesus? If not, start there. Do what that community group in our church is doing and, and just simply share, hey, this was my experience and, and what I... And it's powerful because they're I statements, right? And that's all we're called to be as followers of Christ. Witnesses. Eyewitnesses saying, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've learned. This is what I've seen. That, paired with the blood of the lamb, primarily, leads to overcoming spiritual power in this world. Maybe you have received the gift of cleansing but haven't yet fully stepped into the gift of calling. It really is a gift, not just a duty or a you should. It's a gift. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Resurrection power at work in us right now. Gifts in the waiting. Gifts to be received and to be shared. We receive the gift of cleansing and go out in the calling to share that same gift with others. With great thanksgiving. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you that you are good, that you're real, that the whole earth is full of your glory. Please open our eyes, soften our hearts, and help us turn to you. 
Help us receive all of the good gifts that you offer. Help us not to resist them or run from them any longer. But help us turn to you and in humility, simply bow and acknowledge the reality of us before you and ask for help. Thank you that you meet us there, God. Thank you that you run to meet us there like the father of the prodigal son. We love you and we give you great thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.